Welcome to the SLU Podcast, where capital and innovation meet the Permian Basin. Hey guys, this is Tim Powell, SVP of the Americas for Oil and Gas Council and advisor to the SLU Enterprise. I recently sat down with all the key members of the SLU Enterprise team in order to walk through the various skill sets, experiences, and structures that are being leveraged in order to execute the SLU Marketplace concept. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what everyone had to say. I think we start from an assumption that the modal position of a Permian EMP company is that they're long on acreage assets or inventory, as it's called, and short on the cash required both to develop that inventory as well as to pay dividends and, um, and in many cases, pay down debt uh, to achieve a, a more sustainable uh, leverage position. I've learned through my career that financing structure can actually make a big difference. And uh, provided you can package investments uh, or real assets into a product which is investable by either the public or institutions, well, you can actually make a big difference and you can finance things which otherwise are not financeable. Hence the idea of the SAD enterprise. The mechanics are at the highest level are fairly straightforward. As you said, SLU stands for superlocation unit, which we define as 1,280 acres, two square miles or two regularly shaped uh, sections. I would characterize that as the minimum efficient scale of an asset level transaction uh, because at, at two square miles, you enable 10,000 foot uh, laterals. The, the SLU is, is envisioned to be a security on that two mile scale that has title to all the cash flows um, that, that emerge from the, both the, the cash ingestion to fund the DNC as well as the distributions from the resulting production uh, less the lease operating expense. Well, an SLU is actually 1 million barrels of oil equivalent that has been analyzed um, for its quality and commerciality by, by Ryder Scott. That's within what we call the, the SLU entity, which will be a, a 1,280-acre two-section you know, unit that's put together uh, for the purposes of the development of those SLUs. So one, one individual 1,280-acre area may have a number of SLUs inside of it as it's rated in the Wolf Camp Home Springs by Ryder Scott. Let's just talk about the Delaware. As, as we look at the potential eight to 10 different formations that are, are profitable, you have to look at every zone, both the thickness and the drivers of the, of the production and production potential, and then the overall economics of what it takes to get those hydrocarbons out of the ground. And you've got to look at well spacing and the parent-child relationships, et cetera, the things that, that are truly driving how many wells does it take for us to get this amount of hydrocarbons out of the ground. If you do that on a section by section basis, you probably have about 130,000 drilling locations. The way that we've broke down how many SLEs there are, we really do it on a per operator basis. So we, we look at it on a each of the individual operators and looking at about the top 20 uh, operators because they control 90% of, of the basin. Ultimately, you start to see of the companies that we look at, about 60 to 70% of their total acreage can be built into an SLE. So what the SLU enterprise is, has taken on the task of doing is being able to break these into investable securities. In order to do that, we have to standardize both the JOAs as well as the rating system so that, that the market 
capital markets are able to invest in these individual standardized securities of oil in the rock. Well, one of the guiding principles of what we tried to do with this process is to put together a framework that was relevant, transparent, and as clear and simple as possible that created efficiencies. We've done our best to keep it the same. So, uh, you know, there's still JOAs. It looks a little different, yes, but uh, it's still what we call our standardized JOA, which means every JOA you show up to is going to read the exact same way. There's still, you know, all of the different steps you see along the path to develop wells. There's still title opinion renders. There's still title RAND. There's still uh, division orders for royalty interest owners. There's still the need to disclose your AFEs. There's still 99% of what makes landmen and oil companies tick still goes on through SLU, SLU environment overall. And so when you look at the SLU JOA, what we're trying to accomplish is to make a structure that can allow for the free exchange of assets, both the working and royalty interests, and, and, and development plans to where all of this is put forward in, in the very beginning, to where we understand that putting together an agreement that is as fair as possible to all parties, both operator and non-operator. For the operators out there, your non-ops will no longer have the ability to not like these things. For the investors, you know what your development plan is from the operator. So if your mineral owner underneath an SLU, you now have a peek into what the uh, development plan will look like and when those wells are going to be drilled. We structure capital calls so you know ahead of time what you're going to have to spend, when you're going to have to spend it, and you have a, a solidly defined development plan. Well, what's different for us is, is even for things that aren't planned to be drilled next year or the year after, um, we'll ask the operator to, to issue a development plan that indicates how many wells he plans to drill by bench and, and when he plans to start development. Then uh, the critical step is that uh, our friends at Ryder Scott will assign a rating um, to that 1,280 acres and that development plan. We sat down, we talked with uh, some of the folks at Ryder Scott, and they were in the middle of a process where they were looking at the geology and, and economics of the Wolf Camp Bone Springs and the Permian Basin, and they had done a huge amount of work. And as we sat down and talked with them about what we wanted to do with the SLU Enterprise, not only did they get it, but they saw the opportunity. Part of what we looked at this and we said, the only way this is gonna be successful if the investors and those that, are, that, are, that potentially can be a part of this understood that there was a rating that a third party could step back and look and go. And, and Ryder Scott, with, with their background and their ability and, and their nameplate, you know, really seen as that, that level of integrity that they've always had and saw that they could, they could be an integral part of this program. They'll offer an opinion about the quantity of technically recoverable resource that's contained in that 1280 and how much of that's mobilized by the wells that are included in the development plan. And then also issue an opinion on the, on the quality and commerciality of the resource, which really will allow a, an investor to develop a view of what the development economics of that 1,280 acres will look like at, at any particular oil price. So uh, Ryder Scott issues the rating. The rating is kind of analogous, we hope, to, to what bond ratings from Moody's and S&P are um, in the fixed income markets, that they will allow generalist investors to assemble diversified portfolios of rated assets without having to do an enormous amount of 
deal-specific due diligence. We envision investors wanting to assemble diversified portfolios of fractional interests in these 1,280-acre super locations all across the Permian Basin. And the diversification could be by operator, by county, by geologic formation, and also by year of the commencement of the development plan. And, and of course, once you start with, okay, we have this, this, this asset and we're starting to look at how we're going to rate it and evolve it, then you get into all the legal sides and legal issues. And again, Baker Botts, you know, understood it, saw the opportunity. They've helped work with so many companies to bring, you know, new advances in, in oil and gas and financing and structures and entities. And, and they saw that with the right structure that, that and having a, a partner like Ryder Scott to view this from the outside, that they could help structure a, an entity that, that could be a vehicle to bring the value forward and to bring the liquidity the market needs and have a, have a structure that investors would be interested in. You know, of course, as you start through the, the, the structure and the engineering and the assets, then of course, that leads you into the accounting side. Talk to Grant Thornton, who again, they got the SLU idea right away. They brought in, helped us on the audit side. They, they saw, you know, what tweaks we would need to do on the accounting side to make things work. We had a, the idea that someone would come up one day and say, hey, hey, you stupid, you haven't understood there is something there that makes it completely impossible. It's the reason why we went to the best. We went to BakerBots and we asked BakerBots, find a red flag, have a look at all the dynamics, all the issues for investors. And they say, look, after reviewing all this structuring, all of the, the rules around the super location, we believe there is no red flag. And uh, you should check now from a tax point of view, an audit point of view, and we then went to see Grant Thornton, which are very active in the Permian. And uh, they did the same thing for uh, accounts, audit, and tax. And they came up with the same conclusion that because we're actually replicating a structure, which is common in the industry through LLC wrapping up, wrapping up uh, working interests, the system would work. So that was very important to start talking to investors, wanted to make sure that there was no red flag anywhere. No, I left my banking years with the, the firm conviction that there is room for, for channeling attractive investment opportunity, which would be operated directly to the institutional investors somewhere outside of the standard banking distribution or the private equity model. Most of these investors were looking for direct assets investment and not going through the investment fund or asset management world. And especially for the fixed income, part of their portfolios. One of the big trends on the investment management side is, is moving into alternative and more in a direct way. Things like um, private credits or real assets, which includes things like uh, you know, oil and gas or timber or shipping, uh, infrastructure. This, this has been a big trend. So you, know, you can either access that two ways. You can, you can hire a fund manager and invest in, in a fund to do that, or, or you can you know, set up your own internal team and, and do deals yourself. Definitely, investors are looking for some new asset classes. And if it can be backed by tangible assets, that's even better. Uh, operating directly, so no intermediary layers, and returning cash flows which are not capitalized but distributed. The reason why we believe the SLE enterprise is going to bring a lot of money to invest to, to EMPs for the development of the permanent basin is that we've done it already. We've actually, for a startup company, we raised $120 million into direct investment 
and because the structuring was actually something that they actually thought was relevant. So the investors are, are not investing through the equity pockets or debt. The, the money which is invested in TOPLC, which is our, our vehicle, which is very comparable to what a super location is going to be, these people invest from the alternative pockets or uh, real assets pockets. And in most cases, they're actually ESG investors, very environmentally friendly. But in the last five years, we have seen a complex shift. Most institutions have understood one thing. Oil is not going away in our lifetimes, but rightly view flaring and venting as an abomination. And they want it to stop. And oil is required uh, as a product, as a base product for chemicals, for pharmaceutical industry, for lubricants. And, and oil is got to be produced, then let's produce it as cleanly as possible. So this is called the energy transition. And most of the European players right now prefer to invest in oil. And when they have a foot in the door of oil companies, push them to adopt cleaner standards than actually say abruptly, we don't invest in oil. So this has been a great change. And, and of course, provided we can actually demonstrate that the production is cleaner, then investors will be very happy to back this these companies that will actually make an effort. For investors who are, who are staying in fossil fuels but are seeking to invest in the highest possible level of ESG performance, they have a challenge, which is, you could call an installed base challenge, is that, that all E&P companies have a variety of assets. And um, no matter what your metric is, there's variation all, all across the portfolio. Everybody's striving to get better, but those are all uh, corporate, you know, cumulative targets. It's actually not very fair to the oil industry that uh, NPs are judged on everything they've actually built, all the fields they've actually put in production in the last 20 years. Because 20 years ago, nobody cared about environmental. It's a bit like if you were asking Toyota to bring back all the cars they produced in the last 20 years and actually make them compliant to the new emissions constraints and, and levels. That wouldn't be economic for Toyota and it would be seen as unfair. And the, th and the tough part is you can't change a big oil company overnight, right? You can't transform ConocoPhillips, you know, all their operations in, and make them clean and green in one fail soup. It's impossible. But where, where can you start? Can you start with a, a double section SLU? Yes, you can. The beauty of the SLU, we talked about minimum efficient scale for securitization. It's also the minimum efficient scale for ESG performance analysis, and particularly on the E side. So the beauty of the SLU is we can designate those zero flaring entities, label them as such, and let investors say, yes, I want to invest in, I'm willing to invest in oil and gas, but I hate flaring. So I want to only invest in zero flaring. There's not a single company out there today that can say it's a zero flaring company, but there are hundreds of zero flaring 1,280 acre sections. So we believe that by designating some metrics for the environmental performance of a superlocation entity and then putting it out in the marketplace, what will happen is we'll see price premiums, maybe very significant price or value premiums placed on highly uh, environmentally compliant 1,280-acre superlocations. We are working to create a green label or a rating for a, from a third party. This label will only be comprised by five relevant standards 
that would really make the difference between one way of production and a clean way of production. If we go to the most important points that should be relevant, we can start talking about flaring, venting, freshwater use, toxic chemicals, and carbon footprint, maybe in scope one and two. But the five things I've just told you, they're feasible. They can be controllable. They are a good opportunity to, as you say, to start a clean slate. So through the superlocation market, what we believe is that the new developments, which will be standardized amongst all the groups, will actually be comparable to each other. And if a, a, a superlocation is non-flaring, non-venting, and use of water, which has been recirculated, plus non-use of very highly positive chemicals, this superlocation will trade at a premium. And this will reflect positively on the NP, which will actually be the operating company of this superlocation. I believe the premium will be big. And I believe investors will actually rush into buying these, these superlocations. And the, the premium could be 100%. You would have a value that would be double for at least for a, a superlocation, which is producing all in a clean way. Because there is so much demand for that. And that premium will fund and catalyze the rapid uh, abatement, let's say, of flaring or the abatement of water hauling or the increase in water recycling. I would go so far as to say, I, I, I think we should try and pivot or jujitsu ESG from a headwind into a tailwind. It's always possible today to, to sell or try to sell uh, undeveloped properties. Yes, there's, there's, a, there's a market for this, but this market is basically between operators. For the non-op investors, why should they buy something like this when they do not know when it will be developed and if it will be developed and even if the leases and leases will be kept. So it will be uh, it, it's such a challenge. So people who are, are, are stuck with the, uh, with the non-op rights, and, uh, but no new investors or new, new non-specialists of the oil and gas industry will, will come in because it's too risky and, and the fundamentals are not here. So that's, so that's a huge challenge. The cornerstones are of, of focus of, of which acreage really lends itself to needing a solution like this desperately is number one, the acreage that is outside of the, the five-year rule. They're getting zero value for that today. Number two, I've got a liquidity issue and I need dollars to, to develop. It helps me to sell down and to develop acreage that I, I'm wanting to develop. And number three, it brings the, the simplicity of being able or the liquidity of being able of the actual acreage to lend itself to a, a, a simple core up or swap process. The trick with SLU is that nobody ever have tried to commoditize the exploration production part of the vertical integration. If you sit on probable undeveloped reserves, it's, it's the famous 10% ratio, whatever. Basically, it's not bankable. But the reality is subsurface, it's not binary. It's not like it's 10% or 90%. It's everything in between, seamlessly. So the question is, what if we would take all these assets, create the marketplace, and now we let the market players put a price on every piece on that? So, of course, people would say this is worth 90% bankable, this is 50% bankable, and, and so forth. And that was how it led to how do we organize a market like that? And that's also where 
some of the basic principles I learned from the physical forward markets and ICE was that you need to have the industry players with you. If you don't have the industry players with you, it's never going to work. It's a collective action problem. What I mean by that is that uh, there's more benefit the more companies that participate, but you sort of have to sign the companies up one at a time on the promise that something's going to be there. With the PSP, I think that ultimately the companies joined because that scale gave them more effectiveness in executing their pre-existing strategies. You know, each of those companies had a public government affairs strategy, but but by coordinating it, um, the, the force multiplication is is really powerful. Now, what we're doing with with SLU is is somewhat more commercial. I mean, we're focused on assets and balance sheet, but the same principle applies. If we can if we can get SLU scaled and operational, it adds a new club to each company's bag, and allows them to execute their own strategies, regardless of whether it's a aggressive growth strategy, consolidation strategy, organic only, harvest, you know, maintenance, whatever it is, it'll be better served the the larger uh, the SLU gets to be. And the contract has to be relevant. Relevant that it has an operation utility. So it needs to have a, a purpose, a relevance. Otherwise, people will not use it. And foremost, the non-industrial players, hedge funds, traders, banks, insurance companies that may or may not participate in this new market, they have to understand that it's relevant for these industrial players because otherwise they're not going to participate. So what the SLU affords to a, um, an E&P company is a very flexible and scalable tool to both realize value in terms of price discovery, as well as to selectively monetize, which is i.e. to, to trade uh, acreage inventory of, of different varieties, whether it's stuff you're gonna drill or not drill, or slices of it uh, for cash. It can be a really vital and valuable tool to help companies transform themselves into dividend growth companies. Then back to cover Energen, and we realized that the value of the deep products, which was $10 billion, collapsed and the combined market cap a few months later was actually lower than the initial market cap of Diamondback. So we were thinking, how can an asset become a liability depending who owns it? And uh, of course, this SEC five years rules is actually what makes reserves suddenly become like contingent resources if the capital is not there. We believe that if we could commoditize these deep rights, we could then make them tradable and some investors would be quite happy to take positions for 2026, 7, 8 after the five years rules because oil will be needed within six years and the oil will have a value and we believe that the deep rights are valuable. The goal is to put, the, to put an asset together, a portfolio of assets, and then from this, on top of this, organize the market. So if we, if we succeeded to do it with uh, wine, with piece of art, with credit, with the um, infrastructure, with, of course, real estate, with uh, leases on, on equipment, on cars, on credit card, and so on and so on, there's absolutely no reason why the same technologies and the same marketplace could not be put together to oil and gas industry, especially to these tangible rights of undeveloped properties. In SLU Enterprise, we don't have an existing market. So we have to do the first piece first. 
Now, step number one, we have to create a physical market. That's one piece. And once we have that, then people start to report on the transactions that may or may not happen. And on the basis of that, we can now start to create uh, futures or derivatives markets. So we are bringing together actually two kind of market, the market for undeveloped SLUs themselves, for example, the first five years before development. And this market is a completely new market with a time value for this and with traders which will be interesting by this, we know. And two, another phase, which will be the uh, another bucket of investors, which will be investors, longer investors willing to put their money at work. Definitely these two angles and these two buckets of investors, which are could be new investors for the SLU uh, and for the NP market, especially in Texas. If I was an investor investing in or having a market that is on U.S. soil, underground, and a national resource, that's a great asset class to have. I mean, that's fantastic. Why can't you have funds created with SLEs? It's much better because, yes, you may have volatility in the price of the SLEs. You have a portfolio of various qualities of SLEs, but you have a dividend side that is part of the deal. I think that's a very interesting value proposition. That you're going to be able to get well economics, field economics, directly without having to go through a corporate entity or invest in in the public stock of a corporate entity that has a lot of other things going on. You know, if you go invest in in a super location entity and buy shares in that, you know what you're buying. You're buying. You're buying this development. You're buying a certain rock. You know what they're gonna they're gonna drill, and you know that at a certain price of oil, you kind of know what you're gonna make, right? And you're gonna get it, and you're gonna get the cash. And you know, and that that's why investors like to invest in real assets. Traders, I think, uh, will have an interest in this. Traders are not what they used to be. Uh, the big traders are Vital, for example. You have Glencore, Trafigura, Noble. You know, these companies, they have uh, equity between 2 and $12 billion. They are vertically integrated companies. They, have, they start to scratch into the EMP part of the business because they want to control the source of the crude oil because all the traders are in the asset game now. We actually want to own the asset. So they could very well say, what if we put in a billion dollars and we buy SLEs. And from there, we trade it. You can imagine this SLE has a delivery clause in it. So you have an option, either I take money that is distributed from the operator, or the operator has to give you a number of barrels at Midland of a quality of crude oil, a Midland crude. And now it has an interesting angle for a trader. When the market is living, those are the bits and pieces that the traders or the market players will try to second guess when they buy and sell and try to become stronger. The industrial players, they sit on assets, so they will use those advantages. They think they know much better than others what the subsurface in that particular SLE is than others. So they're going to try and sell that at a premium. However, the one who's buying it, he's buying it for a completely different logic and he's happy to pay that premium. And, and that's how you create that market. Well, another point to make is, you know, the, the, the debt that goes into these super location entities, these standalone entities, is non-recourse to the, uh, to the operators, which I think the operators are really going to like. Um, there's even a way to make it um, non-consolidated. So non-recourse 
non-consolidated debt uh, for the operators is, is going to be a pretty attractive thing for them because especially if, if they've got a lot of leverage already. Ultimately, the biggest thing that I would, I would leave our independent oil and gas partners with is, is the fact that we've designed this in a way that it should change very little about the way that they're operating other than the structure under which they do it. And so it's just further standardization of components of the industry on the land side and the rock characterization side. So it's not something that is going to change everything about the way that they do business. It's purely going to standardize some components to bring new investors into the market and truly give them a a true valuation of, of the corporations that they've built. You know, I think the real message here is if we get this product right and we get this structure right, there are literally, as you know, thousands and thousands of huge institutional investors around the world that all are looking for the next interesting investment opportunity. And today, in, this, in today's world, it's hard to find with very low rates throughout the developed world, you know, valuations quite high in a lot of spaces uh, and looking for real assets and direct. So, that, you know, this takes a lot of the boxes. We, if we get the structure right, and if we get enough of the product out there, and we create, an, you know, a big enough market, when uh, I'm talking multi tens of billions to get large investors' attention, then I think you you will sell the stuff, and you will. I mean, people will invest in it, and you will attract capital. If this really works, if we pull this off, this is going to be one of the biggest opportunities for oil companies, investors, traders, possibly even for the authorities and government. This is a huge opportunity for a new marketplace to create jobs, create profits, and it's American. I think it's absolutely great. And if it's successful, you're going to see very quickly non-American interest getting involved. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The SLU Enterprise is striving to standardize, commoditize, and monetize oil and gas reserves in the Permian Basin. If you're interested in diving into the individual episodes with all the different SLU Enterprise team members, then I encourage you to tune in to the SLU podcast to check them out. If you're interested in learning more about how your team can participate in the SLU Marketplace, then please email Joe Quayaser, SVP of EMP Industry Affairs, at jquoyeser at slu Thanks, and see you next time.